I will gladly take, you know, some underperformance here and there and have like maybe like a 95 to like a 98% upside capture percentage. Hi, this is Alexandria from Sacramento, California. You're listening to Your Financial Planner, Now What? The podcast that helps you fast track your career by bringing you meaningful conversations on topics that influence new financial planners, their careers, and the lives of their clients. Many planning professionals may not have a wealth of knowledge in areas like ESG investing or cryptocurrency. So the question is, though, do we need that expertise to serve our clients better? Up next, Matt Fazell, CFP, and Simon Treisner, CFA, discuss new trends in the financial planning space, the focus on trending investments, and how planners can understand what they're good at to better support clients. But first, Allianz Life Insurance Company of North America, Allianz Life, has individuals around the country who are CFPs who want to give back to the planning profession by working alongside advisors. Allianz Life focuses on providing resources and support to advisors and planners to help them ultimately build better outcomes for their clients. All right, everyone. Thanks for tuning in again this week. This week with me, I have Simon Trisna, who is the CIO at ClearPath Capital Partners, which is a $300 million RIA. And Simon recently joined the CFA Charter Holder Club. So congratulations on that, Simon, and welcome to the show. Thanks, Matt, for having me. Excited to uh, to chat about whatever it is that you want to chat about. Yeah, well, we're definitely, we have a lot of ground to cover today. And I know that you and I could go on for hours about all, all the good things. So uh, we'll just jump into it. But I know today we're here to talk about all things investing, both new and old. And investing is always such a fun topic to discuss. There's plenty of opinions to be had out there. And now we're having all these new fun tools like cryptos, digital assets, and other fractional tools for investing in items like collectibles. So before we get into all that fun stuff, I just want to hear it in your own words. What is the main role of investments in a financial plan and why are they so important when working with our clients? Great question. So uh, I think it's important to uh, kind of define what each one of those pieces are. So I'm going to go a little textbook heavy here, kind of how how I think about it um, and how I learned about it. So a financial plan, and correct me if I'm wrong here, but like it's effectively a plan to manage your cash needs, right? Cash is everything, you know, what we use, we utilize. I kind of use cash, money, you know, assets interchangeably, but effectively, you know, anytime we want to go spend money, if we want to go do anything, we need to have cash to kind of support that. So how does investments play a role in cash management, cash management needs. Um, you know, as individuals, we have cash flow, our income and our expenses. And if income outweighs the expenses, we have what's known as a cash flow surplus. Now, if you're a business, right, you can tap into that cash flow surplus um, of individuals by incentivizing them to let you use their cash surplus to grow the economy. That's how, you know, basic economics work. That's how the economy runs. Businesses can offer you equity where you become a shareholder in the business uh, uh, and you can see, you know, it grow using the capital that you, you know, allocate to it, then you invest in it and you hope to realize a profit um, and you get compensated with capital appreciation. Um, having your cash grow uh, effectively for taking on the risk um, for letting the company use your surplus cash. Um, you can also loan money via, you know, a bond to a company where they can uh, then, you know, pay you interest on it uh, for letting you, you know, for you basically being their um, kind of their effect of their bank. Right. And so you may see your, you know, kind of that the value of that loan appreciate, but at least you'll have a, you know, predictable income stream for it. And so you combine the two to grow your surplus cash 
Um, and that way, when you do have a need to you know, use that cash, your now surplus cash, all of your savings has grown. Very textbook definition, kind of the way I look at it. But, you know, in short, it is uh, just a giant kind of tool to help us meet our future cash needs. Yeah, I love it. And sometimes I think we get you know caught up in you know, all these mutual funds that we can choose from, ETFs, stocks, bonds, all those, you know, fun tools that we have at our disposal. But at the end of the day, all we're really solving for is cash flow. And, you know, I can I can just hear the excitement of, you know, like markets in general in your voice as you're describing those things. And I'd love to hear more, you know, where did that passion come from and what ultimately led you to pursue getting your CFA charter holder? I was always good with numbers. Um and I, I, I kind of wanted to, uh, to work, you know, in, in a field where I can put that to use. Um, and so you're going to love this story being a sports fan, but growing up, I wanted to be like a, a sports agent, right? I kind of realized I'm not going to be a professional athlete. I didn't have that same mentality and drive, but I was like, I want to work with, with athletes and I want to work with them kind of a sports kind of role, like sports advising, contract advising, you know, kind of sports Asian, right? So um, I also quickly realized that that's a very difficult field to get into. Um, and so the next thing was like, well, I want to work with, you know, people, you know, and, and kind of manage their money. So it's like similar uh, a little bit, but not the same. It's basically like, you know, being a sports agent, but for, you know, everyday people. Um, and that's kind of how I, you know, got into wanting to become a financial advisor. Um, I loved investments. I got into the markets at, at, at an early age watching, you know, whatever was on TV with my dad, which was usually, you know, CNBC and, you know, shows on, on PBS about money. Um, and I loved helping people. So that was kind of my exposure into this and, uh, eventually kind of ended up working, you know, out of college as a, you know, financial advisor associate at ClearPath where I could really put, you know, that passion, um, into use. Um, and then, you know, I coming out of a small, you know, college, at, at you know, in California here, St. Mary's, you know, I kind of had imposter syndrome, to be honest with you. Um, I felt like I needed something to kind of validate my knowledge and my passion. And I wanted to continue to learn. Um, and so I decided to embark on getting my, you know, CFA charter, um, which was an arduous process. But, you know, I am much better off for it, both from lessons learned from the curriculum, um, but also from just the experience uh, in itself of, you know, setting uh, a lot of time and sacrificing um, a lot to study, prepare, um, and ultimately, you know, take the exams. Yeah. So, I mean, it sounds like I always love those origination stories. So did you grow up on Mad Money with Jim Cramer? Is that, was that a God, no, no, <laughs> I can't think of the show, but it was the, uh, it was the Friday night one on PBS. And I always remember I wanted to watch like the Friday night Giants game. And my dad was like, no, we need to watch this show first. First pitch would be at 7.15, show would be from 7 to 7.30, and then after that, we could flip the channel and watch the Giants. Um, I'm sure uh, I'm sure you could look it up. Um, I think it's on Bloomberg now, but I, I forget the name, but that was that was my, uh, my story. I love it. Yeah, and, and I think, you know, for our audience specifically, just getting started in their career, you know, usually the first step is your series exam, maybe the CFP, but... To those listening, what would you say was that like aha moment? Like, I need to go get the CFA. I think sometimes we get caught up in getting designations just to get a designation. And I don't think the CFA is a great one to choose with how hard it is. Um, but what was that aha moment or what should our listeners be looking at 
to say, this is something I should pursue? For me, it was the realization that so many people that ran money at the institutional level had them. And I think I really wanted to be in that inner circle and get that credibility of like, hey, you know, I'm legit. I know what I'm talking about when it comes to the capital markets, to all things investing. Um, and so, you know, at the time, I was like a year out of college. I kind of didn't know if I wanted to stay at my firm. I didn't know if financial advising was a path. And I think I kind of wanted flexibility and, and optionality. And I thought getting this designation would give me an opportunity to pursue other careers within our industry. Um, not necessarily the financial advising profession, but within like investing and, and finance in general. Um, and so that was kind of the original motivation. Um, and as I kind of grew at my firm um, in my career, as I went through the test, I, I, I quickly realized, you know, how much I'm better off going through it than had I just kind of not done anything. Because now I feel a lot more confident in information that I say, I understand, I'd like to think I understand what's happening, you know, in the capital markets more whenever I'm evaluating an investment opportunity, I, I kind of know what to look for. And so for me, it was more of like, you know, I had a passion for capital markets, all things investing, and I wanted to have um, a bit of, you know, credentials, so to say of like, hey, I actually, you know, I know what I'm talking about. I'm on the same playing field as, as a lot of people that I respect. Um, so that was kind of my, um, not necessarily aha moment, but the reasoning for it. I mean, I think at the end of the day, kind of boil down to imposter syndrome of like, hey, you know, I, I wanted to get this to kind of prove to the world that, you know, I, I'm legit. Yeah. And, and that's a huge thing for especially those just getting started, like building up that confidence, getting rid of that imposter syndrome, if that's even a possible thing. Um, it never goes away. I'll tell you that one. It never goes away. But the one thing I will say about the imposter syndrome because it's something, you know, I've, I've kind of thought a lot about the best way to kind of overcome it is just to prepare heavily. So like if I'm going to a big meeting, either with an important client, um, a prospective client, or, you know, a, um, I'm evaluating a fund, like I want to be the most prepared person in the room. So like when I, you know, tell people like, oh, I'm swamped, I have so much work to do. Most of the time I'm preparing for things, right? So like if I have a whole gauntlet of meetings, like I'm spending like a couple of days beforehand making sure everything's prepared. And, you know, there'd be times where, you know, I'd spend, you know, four hours preparing for a 15 minute meeting. So little sidebar there, but that's, that's how I've kind of learned to, um, to work through my imposter syndrome. Yeah, no, I think, I mean, having, having a well-prepared plan is what financial planning is all about. And that certainly should be true you know, with those conversations that we're having with our clients. And I'm curious, like, you know, with, with digging deeper and getting the CFA charter, was that a result of just purely the clients you're working with? Or is that just like the approach the firm has? I guess, why, why such a heavy focus on, on the investing side? It's more, I think it has to do something with, with how our firm initially, you know, was set up. It was founded, you know, in 1996 by guys that were in the brokerage industry that really wanted to be holistic advisors, um, but they came from an investment first background. And I think that kind of shows you the legacy of our, you know, industry as a whole, because for the most part, it is so investment dominated. Um, and I feel like financial planning um, as the sole kind of goal of the firm or the priority of the goal is a fairly new thing. Um, you know, it may not be new to us, but it, across the industry, it, you know, it is, is so new. And so, you know, so that was like one of the areas, like, you know, even when I became an associate, like it was very much like investment first and foremost. 
Um, and then two, kind of with the, the client base that we, we, we work with, which um, a lot of them are high net worth, you know, multi-million dollar portfolios. You know, some are, you know, a lot more than that. There are a lot more, you know, complex investments that they can, you know, allocate to. Um, and so for me, as I was going to be working with those types of clients, you know, it, it did, you know, kind of help me go through the, um, the curriculum and, and kind of learn more about some of those types of investments to where whenever I'm evaluating them or presenting them to a client, I, I know the ins and outs and, and can confidently, you know, explain to them kind of, Hey, this is what this investment's all about. And this is how, you know, it fits in your overall um, investment portfolio and in your financial plan. Yeah. And I, I love what you said there where how the financial planning first or the financial planning being the thing that we're selling to our clients essentially um, is fairly new. So I think in a sense, we've almost gone too far in one direction. Like maybe we're a little too high level or just relying on, you know, low fee investments, you know, broad-based mutual funds. Like I just, I'm just curious to hear from someone like yourself who really digs into this stuff all the time. What do you think most advisors or financial planners do really well or could use some work on in their investment approach? I think financial planners that I've spoken to um, understand their limitations when it comes to investment research and capacity, and they're extremely honest and about and upfront about it with their clients. And you know, for those that allocate specifically to passive ETFs, that's not what their firm's about. That's not what their investment philosophy is about. Um, and so they're focusing more on adding a lot of value on the financial planning side and just letting the investments kind of be passive and just like, hey, we're going to get you global market exposure and we're, this is, it's going to grow and this is how it fits into your broader plan. Let's work around the edges on the financial planning side. That's incredible. That's awesome for you know that type of client who's looking for something like that. I think one of the biggest misconceptions that we have, um, you know, in our industry is, you know, that that passive ETFs are, you know, are the shit. Um, and, and this is something that I sometimes have to, like, you know, not engage in uh, in dialogue with uh, with other advisors because I, I think there are actively managed investments, be it in an ETF or a mutual fund, that merit their their fee. Um, so for example, emerging markets, I'm extremely bullish on what's going on, you know, in, uh, over the long term in, in Asia, um, right now, obviously it's a, it's a huge struggle with what's going on with China, but on aggregate, very bullish on, on, on emerging markets, given the demographics of what's going on in China, India, and, and the surrounding countries. So you can have a cheap market weighted, you know, ETF exposure to emerging markets in reality, you know, 20% of it is five tech names, four of them are in China that are struggling right now. Or you can have an active manager that has an office or multiple offices, you know, in China um, that has boots on the ground that can find, you know, promising up and coming companies um, that you can invest in that, you know, over a market cycle will outperform their benchmark and, and their index. Um, is it easy to find? Not really, but there are managers that exist and have, you know, really interesting investment philosophies and ideas. Um, and for me, I'd rather have you know, for an asset class like emerging markets, a combination of passive active where like, hey, I do want to have a manager that has an office in China that is able to go and meet with management of the companies and is able to, you know, properly do the research on it and, you know, find really intriguing ideas that, you know, will make it into a potential ETF that's passive. Similar to fixed income, right? You, you can have an active bond manager with a flexible mandate that can, you know, navigate the interest rate curve, 
um, duration, you know, credit quality to kind of see where they fit, uh, where they see opportunities rather than just, you know, plainly owning the Barclays Ag Index. Um, so my investment philosophy really has been built around, you know, a healthy blend of passive and active and really finding areas of the market where you want to have that active exposure for. And then other areas where you supplement that with with the passive to kind of lower the overall um, expense ratio of the portfolio um, and, and kind of build it that way. So um, that's probably the biggest, biggest one that that I have. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. And, and I think that's something, too, that it's happened in different ways over recent history. Like, you know, investment alpha used to be more of a real thing when information moved slow and being geographically close to information was a true advantage. I guess like, you know, that's still possible, like you were saying, like if you have boots on the ground somewhere, but at what point do you feel it's not really worth the extra time and research? Like, I totally understand what you're saying, but is there a point where you just get some of this diminishing return or it's really not that big of a difference? Or do you still think there's, you know, completely valid reasons for spending that extra time to find those small opportunities. Well, and I think that's where, you know, if you're a financial planner, you have to know what you're good at and what you're not and what you have the ability to do and not. So like for, for my firm, you know, because I have, you know, a dedicated CIO title, you know, I have the ability and the time to go out and research different things, play around with different ideas um, and, and continually look at it you know, while still, you know, having a book of business and, and having other clients. But if you're a solo pr- practitioner, you know, you have to be very mindful of your time and where you spend your energy um, because you would be doing a disservice to your clients by not, you know, taking the best care of them that you can if you're spending a lot of time trying to research, you know, funds. The other thing too is, you know, you don't want, want to have like a small weighing to like an active mutual fund um, because that's kind of useless. You know what I mean? Like if you have a 2% weight and you spend all this time figuring out the right you know, mutual fund, right manager for that 2% weighing, like that's not going to make any difference. Um, so like for some of the higher conviction ideas, um, that's where it plays a huge role. Yeah, no, that, that makes, that makes a lot of sense. And, and I think too, you know, it, it's exactly what you said, right? Like your clients are coming to you for a specific set of value, a financial planner who may be a solo shop, like you said, it's just a completely different value set. And it really boils down to how you have to spend your time. For for me and, and, and kind of my clients, the um, the value added is is the risk management first and foremost, right? Because like when you're in an all passive portfolio, like you're living and dying with market risk. A lot of the majority of you know our clients have already made their money. Um, and so now it's more of like, hey, we want to participate as much as we possibly can in the upside, but we really want that downside protection. And so you know, with a passive portfolio, right? 100% upside, 100% downside. But for for a portfolio like, you know, what I'm trying to achieve, like I will gladly take, you know, some underperformance here and there and have like maybe like a 95 to like a 98% upside capture ratio or capture percentage. But if we can, if we only lose like 80% on the downside, that's a hell of a fucking win. Um, and so that's kind of where it, it goes back to know your clients and, and know what you're looking for. Um, because the way that you know our firm's investment philosophy has been from day one it's you know risk adjusted rate of return you know we're not looking to provide alpha and beat the market we're looking to first and foremost have capital preservation and really try to protect on the downside while 
you know, participating as much in market upside as we can. Now that makes a lot of sense. And I think there that comes too down to client values and what they they care about. And and one thing that I've found really interesting, and I've heard a lot of hot takes on this out on Twitter or just other communities that I'm a part of, but you know, things like socially responsible investing, um, you know, ESG, these have all been movements in how advisors are trying to match their clients' values inside of the investment portfolio. What are your take on some of those trends? We'll start there. And of course, I want to tap into crypto later, but I'd love to hear your take on SRI and ESG first. One of my internships in college, I, I was lucky enough to work at a, at a company, um, unpaid, of course, because they were a startup, but um, I knew the professor and the, the guy who founded the company was an alum um, called True Value Labs. And, and they kind of opened my eyes on the benefit of SRI ESG. It is a huge risk in a business if you don't have those qualities right because like you can be as profitable and you know have great revenues have great you know future potential but if there's some risk that you're going to get slapped with an environmental lawsuit if you have terrible governance and oversight and there's rapid corruption going through your business that is a market risk right you have to account for that and so there is a reason why those types of investments have actually outperformed the broader market. Um, and it's not just from expressed interest and in people buying those companies. It's, I will argue that companies that have great ESG SRI scores, however you want to categorize it, um, are better long-term investments. Um, the challenge is there's a lot of ETFs in particular, I'll pick on those, um, that are slapping an ESG name on their, you know, on their name, right? Like, oh, we're going to be like an ESG ETF, but they have really lax rules or, you know, they permit companies to be in their ETF that, you know, you and I may not be like, look at it and be like, how did, how did that name get in? Right. So I think you have to be extremely careful in identifying the investment when it comes to SRI ESG. But I think over the long term, those companies will outperform. And it's something that, you know, I will um, go to bat for anytime. Um, and so, you know, we have ESG managers in our portfolio. We, for active managers, we, we want them to have ESG, an ESG component to their, you know, security selection process, both on the bond and, 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 and equity side, because um, it is legitimate risk if a company has poor um, qualities. But like I said, the challenge is each and every one of us has a different definition of what like a quote unquote good, you know, ESG score rating is. And I think kind of finding the right investment. Um, to match your definition is, is still a challenge. Yeah, it's it's really interesting, and and I get exactly what you're saying with slapping a SRI ESG on there. I this was probably last year, I think, but a client wanted to do like vegan investing, and I was doing some research and like companies like Microsoft and Apple. I was like, what did these even have to do with being vegan? Like, but they were they made some vegan commitment or something like that. So that's a great point. And I'm curious, like, just to hear your take on it. I know there's not like a ton of certainty as to whether this will hold true going forward. But do you think it's like almost impossible to apply a filter like, say, you know, green initiatives or vegan, if we want to use that example, and monitor that to the point where it's truly effective, but not cost prohibitive? No. And so this is gonna be a shout out and a plug to the good people at O'Shaughnessy Asset Management. Um, Patrick and his team have developed a 
customized direct indexing solution called Canvas that is developing the technology to basically get to that granular level. So it's coming um, where we can have kind of what's known as like impact investing in portfolios where we can go and be like, hey, let's remove these companies or focus solely on these companies. I think the challenge that is going to be as, you know, um, for some of these different, you know, ESG things or, or SRI is, you know, how much of their revenue is kind of derived, you know, from kind of that kind of uh, part of, of their business. It, does that make sense? Yeah, no, it makes a lot of sense. And I think it's just something that I feel younger investors are more inclined to like have purpose behind their investments versus just make as much money as possible. I think that's just true in general. Um, and they want to participate in these movements, whether it's SRI or ESG or even new and upcoming things like crypto, which is a perfect segue into, I just want to hear, you know, like these are all very new things. We don't have... A ton of historical data on them. Most of them aren't more than you know 10, 15 years old. How does you know someone like yourself with a heavy investment background even start evaluating these things for uses with clients? Or how do you how do you even value a cryptocurrency? That's a million dollar question. And that's something that I'm still trying to actually figure out. We are going into a new paradigm known as like web 3.0. So like what is it? The internet is like web 2.0. And everything that's developed on the internet right now is considered Web 2.0. The challenge for me as a kind of fundamental investment kind of philosophy is this is so new. How does it fit in? You can't really take traditional metrics and apply it to cryptocurrency. And I'm not talking just like Bitcoin. So Bitcoin, you can kind of, you know, if you go with a digital gold assumption, right? And you look at the market cap of gold, you look at the market cap of Bitcoin, you can be like, okay, it has, I mean, because you know that, you know, there's a finite amount of Bitcoins, you can kind of say, okay, if, if they can get this much market share of gold, this is what Bitcoin will be. Um, the, obviously the challenge is Bitcoin is, is not just digital gold. There's a lot of other uses for it. And so, you know, how do you account for that? So, but for other, some of the other new crypto being developed, you know, it's incredibly difficult to assign a value to it. And it's difficult to predict where it's going because, you know, it's kind of either a all or nothing approach or so it feels like, right? Some of these are, you know, have the potential to have, you know, a hockey stick return where all of a sudden, you know, it's a, you know, a 10 X or hundred X return on investment and others might peter out and, and, and kind of die. I don't have a good answer for you on, on how to value these things. What I will say is there are a lot of investment professionals that are actively looking to figure out different ways to kind of assign a value um, and figure out what they could be worth. Um, a lot of it is based on potential future revenue. Um, and a lot of it is based on market cap upside, but it's, it's so difficult to value. So with that giant caveat, there. Um, the way I'm personally looking at it as is effectively venture capital. This is so new. This is a technol technology story, not an anything else story. And so it's like, hey, you know, these are some really cool, um, you know, protocols, you know, kind of if you take a look at instead of saying companies, protocols, right? These are some really cool protocols being developed. 
um, I want to partake in it, right? I'm going to buy those, you know, underlying tokens and I'll see what happens. Um, the way I've talked about it with, with my clients is they've been slowly, you know, looking into it um, and, and wanting to get some exposure to it. It's, it's money outside your, your core plan, right? So going back to that initial kind of question about investments and how does it fit in financial planning? Um, we're not tapping into the core kind of um, savings. They're not counting on these assets um, for consumption in later years. Um, it's more of a, hey, let's see what happens here. And, you know, if it does appreciate, I know that I can potentially tap into it to have, you know, any goals, you know, that I, that I you know, may want to do. Now, I love that. And I think that's, I mean, that's the safe approach to take. And there's not really enough data to have a conversation deeper than that at this point, because we just don't know. And if you say, you know, well, you're putting yourself on the hook. But I also find it really interesting, like with these things being difficult to value with things like, you know, collectible digital assets like NFTs, or we've even seen like the division and sale of shares of collectibles through tools like Rally Road. Like, how do you ever see a point where we're able to really measure the movement of these things like we do with companies and stocks and bonds? Or do you feel like this is just going to be something that is always somewhat speculative in nature? Both. Is that a cop-out answer? I think for some of the stuff like on Rally Road, like you could measure, you know, within their platform of, you know, how much has it kind of appreciated, I think you know, with Rally Road, a lot of it is kind of appraised value and market value, like what other, like your shares of a good is worth what other people are willing to pay for it. So a lot of times you kind of have that laggy data. Um, and like with, with NFTs, I think there are groups that are working to kind of develop a little, like a, like an index almost, like a broader based indice. I know for crypto in general, you know, um, the the guys at, you know, Venek, Oh, and I call them out because they're the ones I, you know, I, I talked to quite a bit. Um, they're developing indices um, to kind of measure performance of, you know, for example, like smart contracts. Um, and you can quickly, you know, pull up and be like, hey, these are how, you know, smart contract protocols on aggregate are performing and, and track that. So, yeah, it's a, it's a tough one. It was purely an opinion question and answer. Um, but I think, I think the challenge is how fluid is the market, right? And so, like, you know, NFTs, the thing with crypto is there's because it is a data driven technology, it's because it's data driven technology. Um, it's uh, it's easy to track, right? I think like on OpenSea or, or whatever, like you can kind of get an idea and aggregate enough NFTs to see how they're, you know, trading. Um, I think uh, whether it's an accurate portrayal of the market, that's a different question. Um, but I, I think you, you'd be able to track it over time. I think the challenge for crypto on a broader scale is, you know, if if I as a portfolio manager wanted to have a, you know, a 5% allocation to it in, in my portfolios, you know, what are the rebalancing rules for that because of the volatility of the asset class? Because, you know, you can have a 5% allocation to it and then a week later it's it's 10%. Like, do I go ahead and, you know, trim the position by half and, you know, allocate to the remaining of my portfolio. And on the flip side, if it goes from five to, you know, 3%, do I do the same thing? So um, that's kind of where uh, I think a lot of advisors are also struggling right now is, 
you know, how does it fit into the overall portfolio, uh, which is why I, I kind of go back to the whole, hey, just take it as venture capital as kind of your satellite, quote unquote, fund money. You know, we're still going to incorporate it into your financial plan, um, but we're also, you know, not going to rely on it for potential future use. Yeah. And, and I think that's a, a really interesting point, like not only the rebalancing and the allocation piece, but also, you know, how do you how do you rebalance two things, right? Like, let's say your stock ETF and cryptocurrency when, you know, you can only trade the stocks Monday through Friday, but you can trade crypto 24-7. You know, do do communities trade around that knowing that similar to how people trade around mutual fund ETF inflows outflows like I, I guess how do you see do you see it almost in a sense where the two markets mirror each other where either crypto is regulated to trade five days a week and stocks remain to train five days a week or do you see it going 24 7 on both sides I have a hard time envisioning the capital markets go into a 24 seven um, trading. I think that would be almost a nightmare situation um, to be honest with you. Could you imagine like during the March, 2020 pandemic when everyone's selling, like getting calls from clients to sell at like Sunday at 9 AM, like that would, that would be a nightmare. And I think there's so much, there's a huge, kind of lobbying group that would never allow the markets to, to be, you know, 24 seven, in my opinion, um, whether I think that's right or not from just like a, a you know, personal point of view, um, I don't, but I think from a professional point of view, I think, I think it'd be really hard for the capital markets to go, um, 24 seven. Um, I also think it's gonna be really incredibly hard for crypto because it does a globally traded, um, medium of exchange, um, to, uh, to, to be confined to a certain thing. Um, and, you know, I don't know what the regulations around it are going to end up, but I, I can't see that market not being 24-7, given some of the case uses for it. Because if you think about it, right, if we want to use, uh, call it like Ethereum to buy NFTs, right? And I'm not talking about like buying like a, you know, a JPEG, but I'm talking about like buying an album and I want to do it on Saturday night. And I'm like, oh, shit, I don't have enough, you know, ETH in my wallet to go out and buy this new album that I want. Let me go ahead and buy some on the market and then, you know, subsequently buy uh, an NFT album. Um, if you can't convert, you know, um, your cash to to ETH um, on the weekends, like that kind of almost defeats the purpose of it. So long winter way of saying I, I can't imagine either one of them mirroring the other. Yeah, no, it's just it's just interesting. And I heard that question thrown out there in the Internet space this past week and just wanted to hear your take on it. But um I'm really excited to come back, you know, and, and listen to this episode in a few years and see how things have changed. Simon, I really appreciate you jumping on the show today. Um, I always enjoy our conversations and I'll see you around on Twitter in the AGC and hopefully at some conferences in the future. Sounds good, man. Likewise, thanks for the invite. Love chatting. Um, I think as I mentioned to you kind of before we hit the record button, like we can go on and on about this. So hopefully this is the first of a few Um we get to do because uh, I think we're both, you know, extremely passionate about this space and, and have a lot of um, well thought out opinions to, to share with everyone else. Yeah, for sure, man. We'll we'll have you back on uh, hopefully down the road and we'll have to come back and revisit this and see how right we were. 
Allianz Life Insurance Company of North America, Allianz Life, has individuals around the country who are CFPs who want to give back to the planning profession by working alongside advisors. Allianz Life focuses on providing resources and support to advisors and planners to help them ultimately build better outcomes for their clients. Love what you hear on this podcast? Join us in the FPA Activate Facebook community, where you'll find a community of other passionate planners like you. Not only that, but there are live How We Do What We Do sessions focused on what real financial planning looks like in practice. Be sure to join us there to lend your voice, become a better planner, and help grow the financial planning profession.